And welcome to the Wellbeing and Career World podcast. I'm delighted to be chatting with gymnastics guru, multiple business owner, public speaker. Nicole has pioneered the gymnastics industry by developing businesses that employ former Olympians, world team members to help train the next generation. She's also a podcast host, highly rated gymnastics judge, Olympic choreographer, and international clinician and speaker. Today we'll be chatting about gymnastics and health. A very well welcome to the podcast, Nicole Langevin. How are you today, Nicole? Perfect. Okay, let's start this out. Where are you right now on planet Earth? <laughs> <laughs> say that, I'm sorry, say that again on planet Earth. I'm in, I'm in the USA and I'm in Connecticut. Okay, so, so our listeners don't know where Connecticut is, so give them a geographic location compared to New York or Boston. How close are they? Very close. So uh, Connecticut is part of New England, so it's in the northeast part of the country. Uh, what is your temperature today? Tell me, Ooh. let me know. Give me Fahrenheit. I'll convert it to Celsius. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is going to peak today at a very sunny and warm 45 degrees. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm not going to calculate the Celsius. It'll depress uh, the list. It's cold. That's, that's pretty chilly. Yeah, pretty, pretty yeah. chilly. So I gave a brief introduction about your background. I'm very fascinated today to find out about more about your background, especially in the gymnastics world. So can you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself? I sure. So I, I was a gymnast myself for uh, since the time I was well, officially five, but I think I really started when I was about two unofficially. I, I trained and competed all the way through the junior Olympic level 10 um, level. And I had an injury which prevented me from competing in college. However, the passion for the sport never went away. I went right into coaching, uh, started dabbling in choreography, and then uh, found myself running a junior Olympic program out in California. For about 13 years, I was doing that. And on the side was just kind of playing around with this idea of choreography maybe being something a little bit more than just a side gig and uh so and i definitely have always had an entrepreneurial spirit my my father is the same way it's definitely where i got it from and so i i started doing choreography locally and then i decided i should put a name on the thing so i called it precision choreography uh, fast forward a couple of years i ran into one of my favorite gymnasts of all time olympian alicia sacrimony and i built up the courage to go talk to her, told her about what I was doing, told her I thought she would actually do really well in this as, as well. Uh, somehow she believed me in me and <laughs> joined me on this journey. So that kind of elevated the business because it just gave it more notoriety to have her connected. And she is extremely talented and wonderful. Uh, she is now my business partner in a different business, but I'll get to that in a second. Okay. Um, so, so with the choreography, now I've got a team of just over 20 different choreographers and clinicians. So now Precision is not just choreography. We actually travel and do, we run training camps, we run workshops and clinics, and then also do choreography. Um, I've got a, a side business with Alicia, like I said, which is called Like a Champ. And we are an agency where we represent freelance gymnastics professionals. So we do things like 
put people in temp temporary coaching positions, just like temp jobs in another industry, uh, or we place them at training camps that are needing a clinician. And then I have a third business uh, that's kind of an offshoot of Precision. It's called My Gym Judge, and I co-own that with three-time world champion and Olympic silver medalist Chelsea Memel. And we take our gymnastics judging hats and put those to different use. So instead of you know, just judging at a competition, we use my gym judge as a vehicle to kind of break the wall between athletes and coaches to judges. Usually there's a big wall there at the competitions. We can't really talk to them or explain their scores. So with my gym judge, we're able to do that. They can submit routines, get feedback. We go into gyms and run workshops all to try to help athletes score their, uh, improve their scoring potential. So where do you get time to do anything else? I mean, I've also got a four-year-old and a six-year-old. I have oh, no wow. idea. Okay, I don't know. You're, you're a very, <laughs> you're a very busy lady. Can I take you back then? So, for the the Junior Olympics, um, how competitive is that? So, gymnastics traditionally at the club level, which is where you know athletes are training uh, before they go to college. High school gymnastics is not necessarily the same as say. You know, when you look at basketball, where maybe they're, you know, they're they're on the team for their high school, then they go to college or university, and it all is seamless. Uh, gymnastics is very different. Athletes train in their private clubs most of the time, all the way up until they graduate and then go to college. So, um, at the club level, you go through levels one through ten, ten being the highest level, and then after that is the next echelon, which is called elite. Elite is what you see on television. So elite is that basically the 11th level. And it's it's very rare for athletes to even become elite gymnast, never mind be on the national team, go to the Olympics or world championships. It's it's a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage. So I, I capped out at that level 10 level. Um, so when they... When level 10 athletes go to national championships, it's the Junior Olympic Nationals is what it was called. Um, since this past year, they've changed the name, so it doesn't sound as impressive. Now it's called the <laughs> Developmental Program, but I still get to say Junior Olympics. All right, okay, just so you know, keep me up to date. So what about then, you mentioned you had an injury before. So how easy then is it to obtain an injury doing gymnastics? I mean, it, well, I, I do watch it on TV, I mean, especially the Olympics. And uh, I'm fascinated at the composure, the balance, uh, the discipline. But it, it probably sounds a bit wrong here. But you know, when you look at a physical sport like uh, you have your like maybe NFL, uh, basketball, yep. you can kind of see the impact that maybe sometimes are getting. So, how easy then is it to get an injury in gymnastics, or is it? It's oh, it's extremely easy, and there's an entire part of our industry that is focused on sports science and injury prevention. Uh, you know, rehab obviously would be after the fact, but injury uh, prevention has been a really big push lately. Uh, one of my employees, Shira Lewis, she's a doctor of physical therapy, and that's what she does. She can look at a gymnast, do something, and know what injury they're going to have in, within the next year. And, and teach them how to move differently to stop it. So that that type of knowledge and expertise wasn't quite being put to use in the past. And I'm sure you probably have recognized before gymnasts on television used to all be very, very young. Yes. And it was to the point where once 
17, 18, that was, that was old. That was considered old back then. So what would happen is these athletes would just peak so early without a lot of implementation of injury prevention and uh, they would, and then they'd be done with the sport by 17, 18 and, and the injuries would linger. Now our Olympic team that we just had were all adults, many in their twenties. And that's, that's a sign that we are training smarter than ever, that we're interested in athlete wellness and making sure that their their bodies can withstand what they're doing, not just go as fast as you can to get results. So just looking at our current Olympic team, you can see that if they're able to do this sport at a high level into their 20s, then clearly we've learned how to how to function, how to help the body function properly. Um, but it's still, you know, you're you're pounding your joints on a regular basis. You're, you're bending and, you know, doing all these things that are not necessarily natural. So the potential for injury is there. And that's why injury prevention needs to be implemented across the board. But even then, you know, the most well-conditioned athlete is still susceptible to injury because it's the nature of the sport. How then you mentioned you achieved the level 10. So, the small percentage that do achieve to become Olympic uh, gymnasts or athletes. I mean, how tough is it to get to that level? I mean, are we talking how many hours a day? Uh, what about diets, nutrition? How, how really, and when do you have to start? I mean, are we talking from a young age here that you must be in that mentality if you want to succeed? I would say, I mean, first of all, it's, it's the hardest sport in the world, hands down, across the board. It's the hardest sport in the world, and I will argue anybody on that. Yeah, uh, and the thing is, once people are really, really good at it and they've mastered it, the whole point is to do impossible feats and make it look simple. So sometimes we forget how hard this sport actually is because they're doing it so well. But in actuality, the hours it took to get there are sometimes unimaginable. I personally, at level ten, was training between twenty-two and twenty-four hours a week. Okay. And that's year round. That's not that's not in season. That's year round. And actually, a lot of times in the off season, uh, which is basically the summer, they are the, the hours go up even more. So there's really no downtime. There's no off season. And and that was for level ten. And that was a pretty standard training regimen. A lot of elite athletes are doing. They're not going to school. They're doing a practice in the morning and then a practice in the evening. So they're doing two a days depending on the coach's regimen and the and what the athlete needs there's obviously a variant there you know there and there's always uh, there's always um exceptions to the rule sean johnson was an olympic gold medalist and she went to school and it was a big deal that this this girl is an olympic gold medalist did it and also went to school at the same time like that was actually rare right but uh and then on top of that, you've got the, the traveling that's involved. And when athletes are on the national team, they have to travel down to Texas to the National Team Training Center. Uh, it was once a month for a while, and then I think every six weeks, something like that. So it's it's an all-in type of thing. And nutrition, like you mentioned, is a huge part of it. Your your body is your instrument, essentially. So it's it's got to be kept up and fueled properly. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of pieces to the puzzle. How then, Nicole, this is where I'm very interested. It's amazing. I'm putting more questions into my head now as you're talking. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating. But how then um, do you manage to motivate uh, champion 
gym, gymnasts, especially at a young age, because you don't want to push them too hard um, right. because it might break them. So how, how do you manage, manage the balance? Is it like, do you insert a little bit of fun with a little bit of discipline as part of learning uh, uh, the skill? Is that, is that how it works, especially from the younger ages? I know myself from uh, soccer is you have to kind of watch that you don't push the younger ones too far because what happens is they just move away from the sport totally because they're not enjoying right. it anymore. So how, how does that balance work? Right. It's, it, that's a great question because there's been a huge shift in the approach of coaching and gymnastics, and it's, it's a good shift, in that the emotional and mental wellness of an athlete is just as important as the physical, if not more. And it didn't used to be treated that way. So basically, the way I look at it is if you have it in you to become an elite athlete of any sport and you are willing to put in those hours to do the thing that's going to make your dream come true, you don't need somebody to make you want that. That You can't make somebody want that anyway. It's it's something that it's a it's an obsession it's a drive and so really what should be happening when you have an athlete that has that sort of intense drive to succeed it's it's not about pushing them anymore it's about honing that and making sure that they are not going too far in that end where they're gonna not enjoy themselves it's almost like they, I don't want to use the word tamed, but it's the only word I can think of. Um, sometimes if that drive is just let to let go, um, their situation cannot be enjoyable anymore. So it's almost the coach's job to help them use that drive, but almost sometimes hold them back a little bit. Um, uh, with, with the very, very little ones, and this is one of my favorite things to do when I do consultations, the very little ones, you know, we've got kids starting at like five years old on preteen a lot of times. And those kids are usually chosen for a preteen program because physically they're coordinated. They've probably got some natural strength and flexibility. And so the coaches go, oh, okay, I think I can, I think I can do something with this. And at that point, it's really about helping these kids understand that, yes, you want to do that cool flip over there. So these exercises, this conditioning is going to help you do that later. It's, it's kind of getting young kids to connect the work with the end result, right. And you do that in different ways. You do that with looking at their age group. If they're between five and eight, they love charts. They love to see a chart with stickers on it. And you can you can teach a kid to love doing chin-ups if they're going to get stickers for it. <laughs> they get their progress. And so, so that's a little tool there because they, they are so young. And you're right. How do you motivate somebody that young to work hard? But again, it's something – I mean, I know when I was five, I was like, yeah, I'll do push-ups. How many you want? Nobody right. told me to do that way. They did. So – you know, it's it's finding that mentality, but also, yes, you, you can definitely give young young athletes the tools to start understanding the co the components of all parts of their sport, not just the fun stuff, if you can make that connection for them. And then what about the age group? So uh, what is a good age to start uh, kids? And I'm going to be say this now, boys and girls, um, mm -hmm. is there as many boys doing gymnastics as there is girls or is it kind of varied? So what, 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 what would be the best age and what would you, in your opinion, suggest to encourage them to do it? Well, it's that's a hard question because the, the traditional thing that you will hear from these high-level athletes is that they probably started in a mommy and me class when they were little. And 
you know, really, really young. But on the other hand, there are some great success stories of, of people who didn't start in the, until they were 10, which sounds unheard of, but they just were that talented and that hardworking that they, they did it. So it's, you know, it's very hard to say, and I would never encourage anyone to put their child in a sport at a young age with the goal of becoming an elite. Right. That's not something anybody can decide except for that child. And it's very, very important. I can't stress that enough. As far as the the men, uh, this is such a, it's so sad to talk about because men's gymnastics is just such an incredible sport. And those guys are nothing short of amazing. Unfortunately, in the U.S., it is, it's in trouble. The, the NCAA, the collegiate program where they are university, gymnastics level that was always where the top athletes were and that's where they filtered onto the national team and to go to the olympics what's happened is so many teams so many schools have dropped their teams that there is only a handful of collegiate men's gymnastics programs left right and that's a very scary thing because that was where they were all training to become future Olympians and future national team members. So it's very, it's a very sad time for men's gymnastics. There are a lot of movements trying to, to revive it and find another way to cultivate this sport so that it doesn't just disappear. Right. Um, and is, is it know, financing as well, Nicole? Is it, is it because there's not as much money going into it? Is that part of the problem or part of the issue? I, yeah, I've had a lot of conversations on my podcast with um, men in the gymnastics world. And there's a lot of different things that, that are contributing to it. One, you know, it always comes down to money, right? And yeah. unfortunately that's just the world we live in. So if people aren't showing up to these competitions and buying those tickets, well, that program's not making money. And so when something's got to get cut, that's the one that gets cut. It's not the cheapest sport in the world. You know, you, you, you need a certain facility and certain equipment. And so, uh, yeah, I think there's probably a money side to it. But the women in college gymnastics is huge. Right. It's not suffering at all. So I think the marketing needs to change in general. I think that even even on television, it, that part of it needs to change a little bit so that people can really understand how awesome these guys are. I mean, we've had conversations about maybe they need to wear something different. Maybe it's right. the uniforms. Maybe oh. it's the, you know, maybe it's yeah. the the overall serious tone where maybe we need to see a little more personality from them. What, something's got to change, but it's not marketed properly and it's, it's trickling everywhere and it's really sad. But fortunately for gymnastics, it's the greatest foundation for any sport ever. So I would say regardless of the end game for boys in competitive gymnastics, I would still encourage anybody to get your boys in there as early as possible because the foundation is, is incredible. And what you mentioned there before with regards to expense, I mean, what cost are we talking about to get involved in? Uh, I mean, you obviously have the facilities available available to you uh, that you would encourage the uh, uh, younger generation into gymnastics. But what 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 would be the kind of the entry level? Are we talking about like your your kit, or if you're going for competitions and you're having to pay that expense as well to travel around the, the state? Are you talking about once they're in college or are you talking about before? Uh, just from a, from an, a, an early stage, say four or five-year-olds, if, if mommy oh. and daddy wanted to bring them along and what would be right. the, the cost involved at that stage, roughly? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, when they when the kids first start, they're probably going about they're going once a week for maybe an hour. Gosh, I'm so out of touch with that. My kids, my daughter actually does gymnastics, and I can't tell you how much it is a month. But right. I will tell you, once they start competing, once they get onto pre-team and competitive team and they're competing, now you're looking at, I would say, an average of $500 a month for training. Right. Okay. And that's just for training. And then every competition you enter is around $100 for the entry fee, plus you have to pay the coaches for their time, plus your own family's travel, plus the uniforms, the you know, leotards are outrageously expensive, they, <laughs> depending on where right. you get them. Okay. And then their warm-up suits. And so that, that's where it just gets to be. It's a lot. And then not only are they training with their own coaches, they're doing training camps, so they're doing specialized workshops. And so, you know, just on that end, I, I'm kind of hoping my daughter's just doing it for fun. Let's put it that way. Right. <laughs> Even though I love the sport so much, <laughs> it's it's a lot. It, it takes a lot to and, succeed. And, and would these, like, big corporations, for example, would they not invest in the lower uh, uh, levels of, not say, probably that's probably the wrong word to say, uh, the kind of like the startups or the, the younger kids in this uh, sport, would, would the corporations not be looking to invest in this? Because this is the future at the end of the day, and you want to motivate the younger generation. Does, does that happen at all? So you mentioned to say the $500 a month. Would there be a corporation willing to say sponsor 10 so the, jun- junior yeah. athletes? The problem with that is NCAA eligibility. Okay, how does how does that work? Because I'm aware of the NCAA, but what what could you explain a bit more about eligibility there? So there's, and I, I am not an expert in this field at all. I want I want to be clear. So I'm I may not be completely accurate, and things are changing. But as far as I know and I have experienced, you cannot accept money based on doing gymnastics, like based right. on performance. Once you do that, you're not eligible to compete at all in college. It's not even that you can't get a scholarship, it's that you've ruined your eligibility to even participate in the NCAA. So okay. people have to be very careful. Um, yeah, I even, like there was a competition where I was, I reached out and offered, hey, I'd like to offer a $150 gift certificate towards choreography for your first place all around winner. And they said they couldn't do that because it's technically prize money and that would make that athlete ineligible. Yeah, it's really hard. So you take the most expensive sport in the world and then they, (laughs) they're not allowed to get it. They've changed some things in college, which is great. It's the name, image, and likeness. So now athletes can, in college, use their name, image, and likeness to earn money, like social media sponsorship and things like that. So that's good. Uh, But it's yeah before that it's still still a tricky slippery slope so so even just so i can fully understand this myself so even say a six or seven year old that is starting out in gymnastics they would not be able to receive any type of payment or sponsorship because it may affect them later on in life under the college rules is that is that what i'm understanding wow correct yeah. Okay, that's all right. I'm talking about trying to encourage people into the sport, and it's, it's, put, <laughs> it's putting a brick wall in front of them. Oh my word! Okay, that's that's. But, but again, there's yeah. you know there there are ways to do it differently, mm-hmm. but that's where yeah people get very nervous about accepting right. money because they don't want to do that. Wow. Okay. Well, let's move away from money then, and we'll move on to <laughs> the, the health benefits of gymnastics. So, um, 
what are the health benefits? I know I've mentioned there before, you, can, you, you need to be, uh, uh, you, you can get some injuries and there's, uh, there's money involved, especially starting out. But what about the health benefits? Obviously, great, great things, especially for younger kids. Yeah, I would say one of one of the greatest things that it helps people with is just general air awareness. Um, and I know that sounds weird because why would you need air awareness if you're not flipping through the air? Yeah. But it, <laughs> it, it's just the ability to control your body in space or on land really is is a really big thing. I mean, I, I'm 41 now and I can still and I'm not very tall. And if I need to get something on, on the top shelf, I don't need help. I climb right up there. It's not a problem. So, you know, it's, it's just an interesting um, example to use. But having having body awareness out in the real world to never feel like, oh, I can't do that. I'm not coordinate, coordinated enough to do that. The ability to jump into basically anything physical and have that confidence. And again, body awareness, air awareness to participate. Um, you know, nothing really scares me to do physically and that i feel like is a superpower so that's a great kind of lifelong thing that gymnastics does yeah so th things like skiing anything physical that is enjoyable to do if a current or former gymnast is really going to always have the power to be able to jump right in and do it and that's that's really cool i'm i'm very aware that that's not how everybody feels. People look at things all the time and go, oh, I'd hurt myself if I ever did that. And I, I don't have that feeling because I did the hardest sport in the world already. The, the general coordination is one of the greatest things. The other benefit of it is once you, once you master even the basics of gymnastics, you really do have the foundation to, to do any other sport. The regular commitment to physical activity is huge. You know, you you just get into this thing where your your body is ready to exercise on a daily basis, and it's a boost of energy, and it's something that you can carry on your whole life. You, you mentioned Nicole there. You're 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 not so tall. I don't know your height. Is any, <laughs> any listeners? I can't see Nicole at the moment. Just in case you're thinking, and I haven't I haven't googled her height. But is is it more difficult gymnastics if you are taller? Or is there no limit depending on the height that you you have? Yeah, that you know that used to be the case, or that used to be the the misconception. <laughs> Honestly, the the smaller ones are easier to spot. Right. right? I can I can spot a, a smaller person just you know physiologically speaking. I yes. can spot somebody smaller easier. But as far as it doesn't make you better at gymnastics, it, it's not even the case um, because that that's been proven wrong time and time again, especially in the last few decades. So it's it's really about being having that strength to body size ratio. You know, if you are strong enough to support your body and you are coordinated enough, you only know your own body. So somebody tall is going to figure it out. Somebody short is going to figure it out. Uneven bars, for example typically actually looks better and the people that succeed really well on uneven bars tend to be taller right it's something about working with that swing that the the longer body tends lends itself to that whereas yeah sometimes the the ones that are shorter can flip quicker in the air because there's less you know less mass to flip around but at the end of the day can you control your body then then that's it and, and there's been some quote unquote tall gymnasts out there who who have innovated the sport because of the length of their body. And that's been really cool to see. 
Right. And so then, okay, you're an amazing promoter of gymnastics. I mean, you should be in charge of the Gymnastics Federation of the, <laughs> of the, of the planet. Um, but what is, I'm going to give you a two-parter here. And, yep. and you have to give me an answer. You must give me an answer. So what's your favorite okay. part of gymnastics and what's your least favorite, if any? Because I know myself uh, playing soccer again, there were certain drills I didn't like going through. And although I love the sport, I just didn't like uh, certain kind of dribbling drills or we used to have to do this kind of like a beep test. And mm-hmm. I, used, I used to hate that. So what's your favorite and what's your, your, uh, your least, if any? Um, well, it's, it's funny because as a gymnast, I did not like uneven bars at all. I couldn't figure it out. Right. I just, I didn't like doing it. And now as, as a coach, as a clinician, as a judge, um, as a fan, it's my absolute favorite in the entire world. I, I love uneven bars. I love watching it. I love thinking about it. Um, it's, it's just funny how that happens to be on the other side. So, um, that was, that was one thing that as an athlete, I was just like, ugh. This again and your hands hurt and uh but it's yeah so that that's completely done a 180 my my favorite thing as an athlete was to do balance beam right but my least favorite thing to do was compete balance beam why was that um i i was I, i did well uh but i always remember thinking gosh i wish the judges could just peek in the windows during practice and judge my routines because they're so good and I felt so confident. But right. I would get to a competition and I just felt outside of my body. I didn't have that that stable mind-body connection under pressure that I try to help athletes have now. So it was, yeah, it was that that under pressure feeling on an event that is four inches wide and four feet off the ground. Yeah, oh, I didn't like that. Right. But it was um, also where I did the best. So I don't, it's weird. It's a weird relationship. Maybe you pushed yourself more, do you think, because you didn't like it, that you wanted to succeed? Would that, maybe, I don't know. Um, no, I honestly just, looking back to even when I first, first started, I remember coaches always saying, oh, she's going to be really good on beam. It's, for some reason, it's just something that I, I succeeded at naturally and then obviously worked hard, but it was, you know, sometimes you have a knack for things. So you can't even really explain why. So um, you would think after succeeding in competitions over and over again, I would not feel like that, but I still would go in every time, just extremely scared. And for the uneven bar, I mean, did you have to have amazing upper body strength? Is that is that part of it? Or is it mainly coordination or balance? It's so this is what I didn't understand before. I heard it, but I didn't understand it. If you watch gymnastics, you will notice a theme of athletes who are very powerful tend to, and this is not all of them, but tend to have uneven bars as their weakest event. Right. And it's because their power suits them on vault and floor. And even on balance beam, it, it, it can be it can be honed and used to their advantage. Uneven bars, you you can't power through that. Uneven bars is basically, if you think about being on a swing set, right? Yes. Why is it so hard to teach a kid how to swing? You can tell them to kick their legs when they're forward and bend them when they go back, but you can't teach them that feeling of the swing right. and how you ride to the top. And then as you come down through the bottom, there's that kind of almost like a little bounce at the bottom and then you ride to the back. 
and then you come and it's a timing thing if you could see me i'm doing it with my hand right now yeah you can't teach somebody their own timing they have to you have to ride the swing in order to swing on a swing set and if you think about it next time you do it because i'm sure you go on a swing set every day you'll see what i'm talking about it's patience It's patience and riding the swing. And that is what uneven bars is. And that's why when somebody's powerful and they try to use their power, it doesn't work. That bar needs finesse and you've got to understand how to work with it, not against it. And that's tricky. The people that get it, man, that's really cool to see. So I'm as you're speaking there, I am multitasking. I'm looking at a picture here of uneven bars. And how then at the beginning... Did you gain the confidence to, well, first question is, what height are they off the ground? Is there an average height or do they, do they, do they fluctuate in height? Well, for up until the elite level, you have the choice of where you'd like those bars to be, how far apart you want them and what the height on each bar is. Typically, the low bar is um, about your head height. Okay. You're standing and then the high bar is about twice that. But in the elite level, they have one setting for everybody and everybody has to use that end of story. I don't know what it is, but <laughs> but it's one one solid one that has to stay for all of them. And do you wear a harness when you're practicing or do they just because I can see in this picture just mats below the uh, the uh, the gymnast. So is 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 it like right off you go? We're going to try and teach you this technique now. And if you fall, get up and we'll do it again. Or are you tied to some sort of harness? <laughs> Uh, most, most everything in gymnastics is broken down into drills. So you have, you'll have maybe a, it's called a floor bar, but it's basically a, a mini version of a bar that has a platform on each side of it. That's maybe a few inches off the ground and you put it on the ground and you work on positions and parts of skills on that floor bar or mats will be piled up under the bars and you'll do again portions of the skill drills or be spotted by a coach depending on what the skill is before you ever really do it on the full set of bars um, with the full swing there's also situations where the bar is over a loose foam pit so if anything happens you're just landing in that and that's a a very common way for people to train skills right and then okay so what is the most, say, dangerous maneuver, or is there a dangerous maneuver in gymnastics that you just need to be more aware of and continuously practice and make sure uh, you follow the maneuver correctly so you you don't hurt yourself? I mean, is, honestly, is, there, is there one out there? Honestly, everything. Every, right. And that's why gymnastics requires so much training because you've got to maintain your timing, has to maintain its exactness for everything. Um, and then athletes grow, obviously, right? Everybody grows to a, till a certain point. So even a, a half an inch taller, all of a sudden they have to rework their swing and go back to basics and almost relearn things. There have been athletes who've had huge growth spurts who had to go back to basics and just learn how to swing again because their timing was so different. Um, and it happens on all the events. You know, your tumbling is different because you're punching different because you have a, you're in a different body than you were in a month ago. So that's, um, it's, it's a dangerous sport if you don't do it right. Um, there's definitely things that used to be skills in the past that have since been banned because no matter how specific you are in your training or how many repetitions, they're just recipes for disaster. 
Right. So there was a thing on bars. It was called a slip grip. I mean, even the sound of that doesn't sound like something you want to do, right? Yeah, it sounds like a bad night out. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> and then there's something for men that has uh, recent, relatively recently been banned, and they're called rollout skills. And you've probably seen them. It's where they tumble. Once they get up in the air, they're flipping and twisting, and then instead of landing on their feet, they go in like a diver head first and roll out of the skill. Right. And wow. that has been banned also. Thank goodness. It must be quite stressful then on the neck at times. I mean, I don't, what is the most, what would be the most challenging maneuver then? Say not the most dangerous, but what would be the most challenging that you might be sitting there or standing beside uh, uh, coaching and, and one of the participants that you're, you're coaching is like going to do this maneuver. And you're like, oh, geez, I, I hope, I hope they're okay. <laughs> yeah, I hope. Well, I wouldn't, and any coach will tell you this, you're, you're not going to be in that position with an athlete where they're going to do something and you just freaking hope to God that it works out. Right. Because if you're feeling that way, they're not ready to go. You do so many breakdowns and so many drills, and that's, that's part of your job too. You don't put someone in a situation where they don't feel confident and you don't feel confident because then, again, they're not ready. I have a rule when they go on balance beam and they're about to do something for the first time, if they start fidgeting and rubbing their hands and doing the, you know, nervous kind of fidgeting. Yes. If you're feel, if you're feeling like that, I don't want to see it either. It's not right. going to go well. So yeah, that, that confidence and those steps to get there are huge because then by the time you do it, you fully understand how it works. You're not just chucking it and hoping it happens. You're actually just putting all the pieces together. Okay, so this is this is for me, probably some of the listeners that have never uh, been involved in gymnastics and want to get into it. So, right, I'm watching the Olympics and you're the coach and the athlete is performing a routine. Are the routines specifically planned out that every competitor from every country has the same routine and the judges base the points on the best uh, the best standard of that routine or can the routines be modified so in in the US there are developmental levels 1 through 5 and for those every level has the exact same routines so it doesn't matter where you are in the country if you're a level 4 this is your routine on floor you know they're all doing the same thing right once they get to level 6 then that's called the optional levels. That's where they're allowed to do, well, them and their coaches come up with the skills that work best for them based on the difficulty requirements for that level. So somebody who's really strong, maybe tumbling forward, will probably choose skills that suit their need, you know, that suit their strengths. Whereas somebody who's better backwards, they're going to choose skills that suit those needs while still maintaining the requirement, the difficulty requirements of that level. So once you get into the elite worlds, and we'll just say when you're watching the Olympics, those athletes have been training those exact routines forever. Right. They, they go in, but they're all doing different routines. They're each doing routines that are suited to their strengths while still reaching the difficulty requirements that they need. So it's it's different with uh, with what you're watching on TV. There's there's no more perfect ten. Right. People used to know, okay, that's a 9.9, .9, that's really good. Oh, that's a 10, that was perfect, end of story. Now what they've done is they've actually, it's called an open-ended scoring system. And there's two sets of judges. 
So one set of judges is just watching to see what skills these athletes are doing and how hard are they. And they're just keeping track of that. What they do is they start at a zero and for every difficult skill they do, they earn more and more points. Okay. Does that make sense? So it could yes. go as high as possible. The highest being done right now, I, I think is pushing seven, seven points, which is crazy. Um, I would say in the Olympics, we're, we're looking at like five point something, maybe six point something for difficulty. Right. That's how hard their routine is. The other set of judges is looking at how well they're doing everything. So those set of judges are starting from a 10 and then deducting, taking tenths and points away based on how, how the skills are actually executed. Right. Have you ever taught... Sorry, go ahead, Nicole. Say that again. No, I just said, so one set of judges is going up Right. One set of judges is going down, and then they add those together, and that's how you're getting scores like a, a 15.2. Have you ever stood there, I mean, and be totally honest here with me, be as honest as you possibly can. Have you ever <laughs> stood there, and you're standing there as a coach, and one of your student athletes has been scored, and you think to yourself, no way, that score should have been much higher. Have you ever had that experience? A million times, and there's not a coach in this world who's going to say they haven't. Right. Yes, a million times. And I'm also a judge. But right. before I was a judge, I strictly was a coach. And I was in California, Southern California, which fortunately, A, the, the caliber of gymnastics out there is, is phenomenal. But also, there is an open dialogue between the coaches and the judges. It's, I, I was up at that judge's table after every rotation. Right. with questions. What did she do wrong here? What did you take on that? Da, 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 da. And they would tell me and I'd go back and you know, that that's to me, that's a big part of how we got better in where I am now. That's not the arrangement. You're really not supposed to be communicating with the coaches. If they have a question about a score, they are to fill out what's called an inquiry form. So they have to go over to the meet director, they have to get this form, they have to fill it out, they're only allowed to ask certain things. They can't just say, I'm mad about the score, tell me what, what you took deductions on. They can't even ask that. They can only ask very specific things. So it's not super helpful. Right. Uh, that's And that's actually why a big part of why I started my gym judge is because now as a judge, I wish I could just talk to every athlete and coach after every routine and tell them how they can get a better score because it shouldn't be a secret. Yes. I, I want them to succeed. We're all on the same team. I'm just doing my job and applying the code of points to what I'm looking at. I'm not trying to to hurt you, but we can't have that conversation and that, that's really difficult. So that's why we do my gym judge. Now we can actually explain to them and help them make their scores higher. Um, one of the reasons they can't do it though, is that it, the meet would end up being seven hours long if we talked to everybody after, you know, right. that's, <laughs> that's part of it too. But it is, it's a very real thing. And as a judge, I'm so aware that people feel that because I know what it feels like to think your athlete was scored incorrectly. And I, I bear that burden on, on purpose, uh, but I don't take it lightly. I've got to get it right. I've got to. You know, I honestly don't even know what team they're on because I'm so focused on the movement that's happening that I don't even realize, oh, I know that I know that person's coach. Like, I don't realize it till after. But it doesn't matter where we have to judge so quickly and so accurately that honestly, there's no time to be biased because we don't even realize who we're judging until it's over. Um, but it is it is very frustrating and not everyone's perfect and i but i've definitely felt felt that before and i've 
I've always advocated for my athlete when I was a coach, and I encourage coaches to do the same. You mentioned there with my gym, George, and I've been very nosy here at the moment. I'm on your uh, your website, Precision Choreo, <laughs> and it has a section there with my gym, George, and it mentions uh, workshops, virtual hybrid meets. How, how then, so say, for example, I'm coming to you right now, um, mm-hmm. as a, uh, a beginner gymnast or I want to progress uh, to the different levels what then does my gym judge do and how then does the the workshops work or the virtual hybrid meets how, how does that actually work well my gym judge is is not a place for athletes to train my gym judge is there to to help them improve their scoring potential with what they're already doing so we give them we give them tips and insight into what small changes they can make into their routines to get a better score. With precision, that's where we do training camps. So we would actually work with athletes to help them develop new skills. Right. And those services you have on your uh, website. So you mentioned the three companies that you're actually, our business that you're actually involved in is Is uh, so if they were to come to you now, does it work like an individual basis, or does it work as a group, or do you deal with with uh, 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 schools, high schools? How, how does that actually work then? So we we work with athletes of all levels. We work with kids that are just starting out on pre team and all the way through the elite level Olympians, and so that that doesn't change. And the format in which we're working with them changes. So if we're doing a training camp, we would have you know, 75 gymnasts ranging from age six to 17, from beginner to advanced, you know, across the board, they're grouped according to their level. And we, and we work with them throughout the day. And then after they are able to schedule one-on-one sessions with our clinicians and coaches. So we do both, I guess that's the long answer to say they can work one-on-one with us or in a group setting when they're getting choreography, that's a one-on-one session. So I'm, I'm I'm being nosy again. Sorry about this, Nicole. But I'm on your on your website again. I love it. Services. <laughs> so training camps, workshops, clinics, choreography. I can't even pronounce that today for some reason. Touch up. So what's what's artistry training? Artistry training. What is that specifically? What a, I love that you asked that. Thank you. Artistry. <laughs> artistry is something that you know. It's called artistic gymnastics, and the gymnasts on beam and floor, especially are supposed to incorporate basically dance in between the skills that they're doing. And because gymnastics is so almost robotic in the way that you need to do the skills, you can't really like stylize how you're doing things. There's really just, you got to almost be robotic about it to do it safely and properly. So it's these in-between moments where the artistry is supposed to come in. And a lot of gymnasts, because of the regimen and the robotic aspect of the skills, have a hard time changing gears in between to be artistic. And so that's what we do with our artistry training is I've devised a plan, a program where we can actually help gymnasts tap into their inner artist and understand how to break out of that robotic movement and and show a side uh, a side of them that they don't get to show when they're tumbling and jumping. Um, it's I we, we've found some really cool ways to get them moving. I'll put it that way. So it's um yeah it's a it's a training plan that helps them understand how to move differently, how to move creatively, and again find their inner artist so that they can put their own stamp on their gymnastics. 
Yeah, pretty cool. I mean, you have so much uh, uh, options and services there you have on your on your website. So what about the podcasting? So what can listeners then that are tired of listening to my voice, which is kind of a normal thing, <laughs> and they want to listen to somebody as enthusiastic as you, um, what can they expect from the podcast? And where, where can they find your podcast? So I will say that the podcast is people that are gymnastics fans will love it because of who the guests are. But I've got a lot of listeners who are not gymnastics fans, so I don't want people listening going, oh, I don't want to hear more this lady talk about gymnastics anymore. <laughs> um, so the, the show is called What Makes You Think, and right now I am in the gymnastics season. I do have other guests coming up who are in the entertainment industry. I've also got as NFL guys that are coming on, and so it, it will shift gears, but the format will be the same. So basically I... I strive to show the personality behind the persona. So when people come on my show, I do a warm up with them that's you know, sometimes a little out there just to get them. I like to get people outside of their comfort zone a little bit because I think that's where you really get true personality. Yeah. So we do a little bit of a warm up. Uh, we, we converse. There's an obvious interview aspect to it. And then what I do towards the middle is I actually surprise them with a video, usually of themselves performing in the past. And I turn the volume, and there's going to be a video. That's not a surprise anymore. But they don't know what it'll be. I usually do about uh, two or three of these. I turn the volume down, and I just ask them to talk. And it's been really cool because if I had said, "Hey, what was it like competing at the 1988 World Championships?" I would probably get the same answer that they've given 25 other hosts. Right. Instead, I show them one of their routines from that competition. And all of a sudden, the, the sights and the sounds and the smells start coming back, and they, they'll tell me something that happened right before that that's really interesting or, or some sort of anecdote connected to that day. And so you get just a, a richer feel of not only the person but their experiences because they're literally coming face-to-face and eye-to-eye with a memory. And that's, that's been really, really cool. That's pretty cool. That's a great idea. It's it kind of put, it puts them on the spot as well, doesn't it? To, to kind of feel that emotion and they can explain it. Very very good. That's a great yeah, idea. Yeah, it's been fun. So it's called "What Makes You Think," and it's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. It's I, it's basically anywhere you can find a podcast, you should be able to find it. And, and listeners, just so you know, it's much better than this one. Listen to my voice. So so listen to Stop. Nicole. That's what you want. <laughs> you very own. kind. Not, not at all. So where else then can people? I was going to say harass you, but where can people get in touch with you? <laughs> Oh, on social media, I mean, are you on? I can see your little symbols there, but you can tell the listener they on Facebook, Instagram. <laughs> so my my uh, professional page is at Nicole Langevin Consultant on Facebook and Instagram. That's where I share a lot of information about the podcast, uh, more consultations type stuff too. So advice, tips, things like that. Um, and then I have my business ones at Precision Choreo at my gym judge and at like a champ camps brilliant what i'll do is when the uh, podcast is released i'll put all the links in so the listeners can get in touch and uh also to say thank you so much to the future president of gymnastics of the whole wild world (laughs) oh god i would never want that I would never want that role. I know you probably don't want it, but I think they probably need you more than likely. Um, Thanks so much for telling me today on the uh, Wellbeing Career Work podcast. And uh, as Nicole has mentioned, you can get her on all the uh, social media platforms and you can listen to her wonderful podcast, What Makes You Think. Thanks so much, Nicole, for chatting with me today. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it.